Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Juan Guaido's bid to bring aid to Venezuela this weekend failed. The effort left at least four people dead and over 100 injured. Recognized as the leader of Venezuela by more than 50 countries, Guaido is now in Colombia requesting international intervention. Enter Vice President Mike Pence, who met with Guaido today, along with members of the Lima Group. The U.S. announced more sanctions and encouraged others to do so as well. Let's talk about Venezuela with David Smaldi. He's a sociology professor at Tulane and a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. Nice to talk with you again, David. How are you, Jerome? Not bad. It's been an interesting few days here for Venezuela. Um, what did you make of this whole weekend's events? Because it was a pretty wild scene. I, I mean, you had this aid convoy coming in, Richard Branson throwing a concert on the border. Uh, it was uh, it was kind of like a circus atmosphere that was meant to <laughs> um, dissolve Maduro's leadership uh, ability in Venezuela. How did you read this thing? Well, it was uh, it was minute by minute. I mean, I think it started on on Friday with the dueling concerts. The Richard Branson concert on Colombian side was an extraordinary success, and they brought in some of the most important uh, artists from across Latin America to sing. It was a huge success. Uh, on the other on the other side, uh, the government tried to have a concert, and that was sort of a flop. They had a lot of artists that nobody had ever heard of, technical problems, and not many people there. But the next day, uh, the opposition started its 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 efforts to try to bring in humanitarian aid and they've been saying for weeks that they have a plan that they're going to get it in that they're going to succeed and the plan didn't amount to much more than just driving uh some cargo trucks straight to the border and trying to have protesters meet them on the other side and getting the material the military to flip of course that didn't happen instead there was just sort of a melee and confrontations with the national guard uh there were people heard there was tear gas and eventually one of the trucks uh, ended up in flames, and and so they drove the other ones back to the warehouse, and and that was that was sort of it. I mean, I think afterwards, a lot of the opposition uh, and their supporters seemed genuinely surprised that the plan didn't work. They really uh, had convinced themselves that the military was going to flip, and that led to a lot of discussion of next steps and and especially in terms of the idea of the responsibility uh, to protect, you know, this idea that governments have the responsibility to intervene in a country where there are uh, heinous acts of genocide or or uh, uh, difficulties of this nature. So, um, well, you know, it's um, this weekend, how do you I mean, when you look at this historically, it kind of looks like a Bay of Pigs kind of operation without any guns. It's it's like a, an effort to take humanitarian aid and politicize it or something or melt away a, a government with it. Uh, it was, it's very odd. Yeah, it was. It was it was really surreal. I mean, it started as a battle of bands and then sort of a battle over humanitarian aid. Uh, you could give it that. It, it For a while there, it seemed like a really quite artful way of – of uh, uh, you know uh, having conflict, you know, through music and through humanitarian aid. Of course, you know, using humanitarian aid for political ends violates most of the standards of uh, humanitarian aid that they should follow. Uh, and so, the opposition has received some criticism on that point. I think uh, it's good to take a step back and realize, though, that the the real blame here is the the Maduro government because they, you know. 
they should not have these strictures on humanitarian aid. There's massive need and not letting it in or providing so many uh, uh, obstacles to it coming in. I think, you know, the sort of the original sin is theirs. But nevertheless, I think this was a gambit on the part of the opposition uh, to use use something so emotive as human, humanitarian aid to try and get the military to flip and, and it didn't work. Let's discuss the reaction of the military to this. There were some defections, a few dozen was what I was reading, and there was someone last week, uh, someone who had been the head of intelligence that defected. Is Was there something significant going on here, or is that kind of small potatoes? Compared to the expectation, it sounds like it's small potatoes. Yeah, I think I think the baseline uh, interpretation has to be that this is small potatoes. No, I mean, of course, it makes great optics to see, have have uh, some military people running across the border uh, and sort of defecting to the Colombian side. But this is not what the opposition had in mind. What they needed was an entire division or entire region to turn against the government and allow humanitarian aid. And I mean, that that could have really started a domino effect. You know, uh, uh, individual or handful of, of uh, military uh, officials or soldiers running across the board to sort of save their hides is not really what they had in mind. That said, some people, some analysts have said, well, if this continues, no, it could grow exponentially and it could, you know, this trickle could turn into something that that could undermine morale and could undermine the armed forces. But we'll have to see. I think it's really, it really depends. And I think it's notable if you look at, it. I mean, the people, the, the, the military people that, that defected, they, they came across running. They, they generally came across running. It's very clear that they're very fearful and that they're being held in place by fear. It's only those that are within running distance of the border that have really defected. And so I think that gives a good indication of how much pressure and how much uh, they're under threat. What do you make of what it would take to flip key members of the military in Venezuela? Because I had a conversation with someone about this before who's done comparative studies to other countries where people – when if the military has an economic interest in staying with the leadership and it would seem that in this case Venezuela's military has an economic interest in keeping Maduro in power because he's got a better deal for them than Guaido, which uh, – you know who seems uh, – who seems friendly to U.S. oil companies coming in and things things of that nature? Uh, there's there's not enough there there for the key members to flip. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know economic interest is the background of this, and a lot of a lot of the high up military that are really in control that could really make a difference if they flipped uh, do have economic interest. But I think at this point. It has to do more with uh, the sort of exit costs they have, the fact that they've been involved in corruption or involved in illicit economies. They're they're known by the Treasury and Department and identified. Many of them are sanctioned. No, it's just it's extremely costly for them. Uh, you know, they imagine, well, you know, there's kind of two bad options. Should I just stick it out, see if we can stick this out? No, in 10 years or so, the international community will forget about this, will normalize, and we'll live happily ever after, even if we can't leave Venezuela. Or should we throw our dice with this opposition movement that has put forward a sort of vague transitional uh, law that I'm not sure if I fit in with? I mean, what could actually get them to, to, to flip 
what at this point there's plenty of pressure that's being put on them what they need at this point is something to sort of relieve pressure something that could make it look positive to them and that that would have to be some sort of transitional justice that would provide some sort of guarantees uh for these people either that they could exit venezuela they could stay at venezuela uh without you know being strung up in the town plaza I'm talking with David Smildy. He is a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America, and we're talking about the crisis with Venezuela. And, um, you know, well, you've got the military there, and there's questions about whether they're going to flip or not. And um, the Let's get to the kind of U.S. element of this. Um, the vice president is down there. He's announcing more sanctions. He's telling other countries to do so as well. He's talking to the Lima Group, which is in theory pledged to a peaceful transition in Venezuela. Are Is the U.S. at odds with the Lima Group here or are they okay and on the same page? No, they're 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 at odds. I think um, you know they're making it work together, but it's very clear that the Trump administration and the opposition, the Venezuelan opposition, are of one opinion, and that is edging towards at least credible threats of military action. Whereas the rest of the Lima Group is very critical of Maduro, but they've been very clear that they do not support uh, military action. So over over the weekend on Saturday night. Uh, uh, Juan Guaido said, well, Marco Rubio first said that, uh, you know, given, given the events of the past, uh, of, of today and the unspeakable violence of the Maduro government, that now there are options on the table that weren't there 24 hours ago. Uh, then Juan Guaido also tweeted and said that he was, he was calling on the international community to use all feasible measures to restore democracy, in other words, uh, including including military action. And so that's the way it was going there for about 36 hours. But then in the, in the past 12 hours or so, the European Union has come out very clearly and the, and the Lima group actually before today's meeting made very clear that they were not going to support military action. So that, that said, it took the, took the wind out of the sails out of that initiative. And I think uh, what they're doing now is trying to figure out how they can beef up their diplomatic measures, how they can be more more effective in their pressure. No, unfortunately, at this point, uh, the Lima Group and the United States and the opposition don't believe really in negotiation. They think that they can vanquish uh, Chavismo. They, they think that they can they can push them out. I think you know uh, the sooner they realize that they've got to pair that pressure with some sort of negotiation, with some sort of engagement, uh, I think the better off they'll be. But right now, you have U.S. Uh officials like uh, like um, Marco Rubio, and he's out there tweeting pictures of the Ceausescu's getting arrested in Romania, Noriega. He's got a picture of Gaddafi's bloody head on his... He's just, tw- he's just tweeting out the pictures of this. And his message obviously is, you know, there's going to be some kind of violent overthrow of Maduro, and, you know, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a very ill-advised strategy because, he, the, of course, these are you know the Venezuelan government has been talking about the Libyan example for years now. No, and that's exactly what they're afraid of. And they look at Libya and they look at Gaddafi and the fact that Gaddafi had actually sort of normalized with with the West and had liberalized to a certain degree. And then look at what happened to him. So, uh, you know, I think uh, you know the the really the really difficult thing is that Marco Rubio is one of the people in the administration that knows most. About Venezuela, a lot of the people that are at the helm don't have an extensive knowledge of Venezuela. They don't seem to be getting very good advice, and everything they do is is basically increasing the exit costs for the Maduro government. 
without any sense that uh, you know they need to uh, engage the Venezuelan government and provide some sort of exit plan. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, Donald Trump has made this now as sort of the centerpiece of his foreign policy uh, for his reelection. And at this point, they've they've sort of have sunk costs and and especially reputational costs, and it would be quite costly for him to back up back out of this. And so uh, they seem to be determined that they are going to push Maduro out. Uh, unfortunately, the people that are at the helm only understand one thing: pressure and military action. And we've seen uh, time and again they tend to overestimate the effectiveness of this. We saw that, you know, in Iraq, they thought it was going to fall like a house of cards. And 10 years later, they're still trying to win the peace. Afghanistan, we're just pulling out now, 18 years later. And Venezuela would would actually, I think, be the same. No, I think it would be much more difficult uh, 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 military action than you saw in Panama. I think it also would be very difficult to win the peace in, 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 in Venezuela. So, you know, hopefully at some point there's enough pressure from Democrats in Congress and from other voices in Washington that will get them to take to use a, a, a broader strategy, a more multi-pronged strategy that includes not just pressure, but some sort of engagement. What do you make of the president himself? He's a guy who is a non-interventionist when it comes to the Middle East. But there's, a, you know, a lot of evidence that he wants a he wouldn't mind a conflict with Venezuela because they've got a lot of oil and they're right here at our back door. He's been quoted in this, uh, you know, Andrew McCabe has this book out and says that an FBI agent who uh, was in a meeting with Donald Trump told him, you know, this is the the Trump said, this is the country we should be going to war with. They have the oil. They're right here in our back door. He's gained most of his knowledge, the president, from meetings with Venezuelan, um, you know, ex, uh, Venezuelan expatriates at his golf club in Miami. Uh, what, what is uh, what, what do you, is the president really picking a intervention that he likes here because it's, uh, it's got oil, it's beneficial, it's in his backyard. He thinks that they can get rich. It also has Florida, though, and I think any electoral map that any feasible electoral map for Trump in 2020 runs through Florida. And I think this is an issue that makes him very popular in Florida. No, it's worked for anti-Castro legislators uh, and and presidential candidates for decades now. And now Venezuela is sort of the new Cuba. And, And so I think it has that attraction. But, you know, this tension has been part of Donald Trump's foreign policy uh, a perspective, really, uh, from the beginning. I mean, already in September 2017, in his speech to the United Nations, he gave this full-throated support to uh, sovereignty around the world and then to democracy promotion in certain specific countries. And so that's that's a, a contradiction, a tension that he's either not aware, not aware of or he's just willing to live with. And at the same time that he's, you know, uh, pulling troops out of Syria and Afghanistan, he's now focused on Venezuela. And I think it's because, you know, I think it really works for him in Florida. It's close to home. And I think it looks it looks to them, it looks winnable. No, I think it's very unlikely that Trump's going to have significant achievements in North Korea, Iran, uh, or, or the, the wall on the Mexican border. And I think they think that uh, uh, Maduro is an easy target. No, they can push him out. That'll help him in Florida. And, and, and I think that just works for them. The idea that Venezuela is winnable. Um, there was another writer in a conservative magazine, and he talked about how U.S. intervention in Latin America 
every country that the U.S. has intervened in has been worse off and has gone through troubles because of U.S. intervention. And everybody in the region seems to know that. But uh, the U.S. still seems ready to go this time and thinks it's a winner. Yeah, I mean, the same way that they they thought that in Iraq. I mean, if you if you go back and look at, excuse me, if you look at Vietnam, I mean, so many of the mistakes that were made in Vietnam were repeated in Iraq, sometimes by some of the same people, you know, and, and they consistently underestimate uh, the difficulty of, of this kind of uh, engagement, you know, in other countries, whether it be with sanctions or whether it be with, with military engagement, and, and they think they can go in and make it work. And, and the truth is, oftentimes it is not that hard to overthrow the leader, you know, and I think overthrowing Saddam Hussein was not actually all that hard. But then trying to win the peace, you know, and dealing with a country whose infrastructure is destroyed, who's experiencing violence, and then is controlled by armed gangs, and that's exactly what would happen in Venezuela. You no, know, if the if the armed forces were defeated, Venezuela is a very big country, big swaths of it are already controlled by armed gangs that control gold or, or access to other minerals, um, you know, uh, guerrilla forces on the border with Colombia, paramilitaries, and all of that, there would be large areas of the country that are controlled by irregular forces. And winning the peace, I think, would would be really dramatic in, in a place like Venezuela. And, and you know, it, it, would just, it would just exacerbate what is the biggest problem in the region right now, and that is the Venezuelan migration crisis. And so, uh, it, it's it's not the right policy. It's not the right direction for them to go. Well, is there anything that is going to pull the U.S. back from the brink here? The U.S. seems to have committed itself to this kind of thing. Well, I think Democrats in Congress could do that. I think, um, you know, the uh, tough knocks of real life could do that, like they saw today, that they don't have support for this in the region. I think, uh, you know, I think the most optimistic the most possi- positive possibility on the horizon is is the international contact group that was sponsored by the European Union and now has a couple of Latin American countries facilitating it as well you know they're trying to spur uh, uh, negotiation with each side negotiation to reach new elections you no know? and, and this this week they sent a an international, or they sent a technical mission to talk to both sides. They didn't have a whole lot of success. Both sides don't seem to be that interested in negotiation right now. The opposition, you know, and its and its international allies in the U.S. are very convinced that they can vanquish Chavismo. Chavismo is convinced that they can hold out. But at a certain point, I think you know the stalemate's going to get costly for each side especially when U.S. oil sanctions kick in. It's going to really weaken the opposition. And, uh, you know, this international contact group and efforts to try to negotiate some sort of elections, I think, could become more attractive. So hopefully that will carry the day. You know, back in the 1980s, the United States had a very belligerent policy towards Central America that, that led to a stalemate for the better part of a decade. And the way out of that eventually was the Contadora uh, uh, negotiations that then led to the Central America Peace Plan. The U.S. opposed that the whole time, and it was you know the fact that the U.S. opposed it actually kind of gave it some juice in, in the region. And so that peace was peace was uh, you know uh, 
uh, earned in in Central America, uh, despite the U.S. wishes. And so I think the same thing could happen here. You know, at a certain point, if the international contact group uh, gains more allies and more and pushes pushes further, it could actually have some success, uh, despite what the United States does. All right. In, in spite of the fact that Elliot Abrams is the U.S. special representative for Venezuela, he is he, he's the guy who was doing all that stuff. He, yeah, he was, he was back then, too. So it's 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 a quite it's a quite nice uh, rematch. Well, uh, interesting talking with you, David Smaldy, uh, sociology professor at Tulane and senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America. Thanks for talking with us again about Venezuela. All right. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Cuba and the significance of this weekend's referendum on a new constitution. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Cuba had a referendum on a new constitution over the weekend. It's expected to pass and replace a Cold War era document. Let's talk about what the new constitution says about the direction Cuba's heading. With me is Maria de los Angeles Torres. She's professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Chicago. And it's good to talk with you again, Maria. Hi, it's actually the University of Illinois. Oops, I'm sorry, Chicago. University of Illinois at Chicago. I was looking right at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to How talk are with you, John. I'm doing all right. Um, typically, has uh, a new constitution been a big deal for Cuba? Well, I think historically it has been, and I think that leads us to looking at the 1940 Constitution, which was a watershed constitution that embodied the nationalist spirit of the world at the time, sort of the populism of much of the nationalism in Latin America, and it was the 1940 Constitution that sets the stage for the revolution, because once the 1940 Constitution is violated – by a military coup, it then provides the, uh, the, 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 the excuse for the rebellion against the military uh, regime. And some of your listeners may remember the very famous speech that Fidel Castro gave, uh, which was called History Will Absolve Me when he was arrested uh, after uh, an armed attack on the military barracks called History Will Absolve Me. The leading character in that speech was, in fact, the 1940 Constitution and the violation of that Constitution and his promise to bring back the Constitution. And that is really what frames, um, if you will, uh, the the politics and the direction of the revolution uh, uprising in 1959. Well, with that kind of historical background and in the front of the mind of the uh, Cuban institutions and government, what, did, did they come out and really uh, do something meaningful here this time around? 
Well, I think that unfortunately our historical memories um, tend to be very short, uh, and that is both Cubans, Americans, and the worldwide. Um, I think that what they have done is they have framed um, this new constitution as a referendum, the way that the president of Cuba has said, you know, uh, it's an anti-imperialist document, right? Um, it is an opportunity for people to consult, and, and there was, was a lot of consultation around a document that was the draft of the document. Um, and, you know, I think it, there's been opportunities really throughout the last 60 years of the revolution where the government has um, initiated a series of discussions, um, sometimes used them to see who was on their side and those who were not on their side. Um, but on this case, I think that there, the change in leadership, the death of Fidel Castro, the um, resignation of Raul Castro, I think that all this uh, called for uh, um, a, a moment in which the government needed to at least go through the uh, the gestures of consulting, if not it being a meaningful process. And we can talk about that as well. well what were the changes that were substantial in this document? Well, I think that there really, I would say there's not that many substantial uh, changes than what has been going on uh, in relationship to the 1976 Constitution, which was a document that, you know, um, supported the Communist Party, declared uh, the country of Cuba as a socialist, um, did a, a, a many, many things, all right? Um, there are some changes from that constitution, but I think the most important thing to understand about Cuba and the structure of the government is that regardless of what the constitution says, the ministries hold the power to regulate in any way that they really see fit, even if it is in contradiction to the Constitution. What has happened since 1976 to today is there's a series of decrees, including, for instance, private property, including uh, the ability of people to hold um, dual citizenship. These kinds of things have been there through regulatory power. This Constitution codifies that international law. It does not, however, change the power of the ministries to regulate in any way that they see fit. All right. So that's an interesting thing. So this is was a harmonizing constitution to kind of uh, – to, to kind of uh, solidify things that are already happening. But, Absolutely. But does not um, – and what about the gradual change issue? I mean people are always saying, well, Cuba is going to change gradually. They're allowing some private property. They're going to have privatization. Does, does any of that get a, um, a boost from this? Is, that a, is there a change in the uh, trajectory there? Is there – is the gradual thing locked in or what does it, what does it mean? I don't think that there's a gradual thing locked in, at least not legally. Um, I think in terms of practice, yes, I mean, I think that Cuba is being forced to change, uh, not necessarily because those in power would like for it to change. Uh, you know, when you have a government that is ruled by one party and um, with with multiple institutions, but one that is very, very powerful, like the military, uh, it's, it's very hard to make change. Um, and the fact that for 60 years, I mean, there hasn't been really any kind of peaceful mechanisms within, within Cuba uh, to be able to make any kind of meaningful changes. Nonetheless, 
I do think that the economic restructuring of the world and the region has forced Cuba to try to make internal changes. But for instance, this thing of private property, okay? Um, they're, they're now going to, as you, you, the word that you use, which I think is really good, harmonizing what has already been happening. But they're also limiting. They're saying people can, can have private, uh, a private business, but it can only be one. All right. And while this in part is responding to what is already going on the, on the ground, it is also responding to the fact that Cuba is facing perhaps one of the most dire economic situations that it has in many, many decades because its trading partners, Venezuela, as you have just been talking about in the show, Venezuela, Brazil, China, um, are all have all been there in the last 10 or 15 years, and they are no longer engaging in with the Cuban economy the way that they were doing for, for, uh, for different reasons, right, in each one of these countries. The other and main thing is that I think that the trump card that the Cuban government has had since 1961, uh, and that is being able to send uh, dissidents or exiles or people who they cannot feed um, to the United States, Obama took care of that and closed the door uh, to Cuban immigration. And so without the escape valve of immigration readily accessible and without these trading partners, there will have to be some internal changes in Cuba. But in a certain sense, it's not so much, I think, that they that the that the constitution this the the new constitution that was just voted on uh which will probably pass okay with 70 80 percent uh of the vote um it's not so much that that constitution is going to provide the vehicle for change um i think you can also look at it as the uh an example of how limited the imagination for change is in cuba given how bureaucratized that government has been for 60 years. I'm talking with Maria de Los Angeles Torres, professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And we're talking about the new constitution that is coming into Cuba. And I wanted to say something about the opposition and what uh, they were trying to do. And the leader of the opposition got uh, jailed there. Uh, what did you make of the, the, the effort to kind of sideline the opposition there in Cuba? Well, I mean, I think it's more of the same. I think that's what has happened. In fact, you know, with the very uh, um, uh, visible um, visit of uh, former President Obama to Cuba, um, you know, for about two or three weeks before his visit, Many of the dissidents, it's not just one, there's multiple groups throughout the island, many of them were detained. Um, one thing which is interesting in this new constitution is that it does uh, uh, provide for the right of habeas corpus, which means that you just can't be detained, at least not unless there's some compelling evidence that there has been a crime that's been commi uh, committed without being charged. Um, that will be an interesting thing to watch, particularly in regards to the the ways in which the Cuban government has repressed the the opposition by just detaining people and not charging them. Um, you know, the caveat there is that all all lawyers in Cuba work for the government, and so therefore you don't have the same uh, you know ability to get an independent lawyer. But nonetheless, th that will be an interesting to watch in, uh, um, provision to watch in the future. I noticed that uh, the document was originally going to allow same-sex marriage, and then the Cuban government backed off on that. What happened there? 
I think that there were uh, religious groups as well as um, the um, the what do they call it in Cuba? The historic generation uh, of the revolution. Uh, many eighty-year-olds that are still very powerful in the Communist Party were really against that, and so that was dropped. Um, it's always interesting to watch how you know uh, uh, strange bedfellows, right? Um, the church and the old generals sort of come together, and um, that resulted in taking that away. There is obviously a younger generation. Um, there are groups, uh, one of them led by one of Raul Castro's daughter um, that has advocated for for gays and lesbians for for many years, and they were behind getting the provision. Um, but, you know, it sort of shows you where the balance of power still is in Cuba. Uh, you were mentioning the dire economic straits that the country is in, and, you know, we were just having this conversation about Venezuela, uh, and... Uh, you know, if you hear Marco Rubio talk, Venezuela and Cuba are they're supporting each other and Cuba is running military guys over to Venezuela and they're, they're doing military consulting and, and all the rest. Uh, what do you make of their relationship right now? Is there, is there that kind of thing going on? I I can't tell you exactly that there is because, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know that for a fact. Um, it would be strange that it wouldn't be the case. Um, these are two allies. Um, they have been very, very close throughout um, all the years of Chavez and then um, with Maduro. Um, Cuba does not have a lot of uh, allies um, in, in the region, but Venezuela has been a very reliable um, uh, country and partner to them. Um, it, it has been the lifeline for the last 15, 20 years. You know, they have bartered petroleum, doctors for petroleum, um, different social services, etc. And there has been, you know, a certain kindred spirit in the perspectives of how it is that they um, they want to carry out their economic and political policies. So it would be rare not to have that kind of, you know, military um, agreements as well. To have Marco Rubio out there and he's tweeting pictures of Gaddafi and things like that, is the Cuban – are the Cubans thinking, well, this is the kind of treatment we could get in the future from these kind of people, the, the same kind of Venezuela treatment that Maduro is getting now? Um, you know, I think it's uh, – Cuba is, is a creature of its own. I, I, I don't want to – um, uh, exaggerate the exceptionalism, right? Because at some, at some level, um, there's dynamics at work that work the same for every country. But I do think that in the case of Cuba, you know, there is a historic relationship with the United States. It has been fraught with both negative as well as positive. Um, I think that you see a lot of people in Cuba today that are saying they would rather be in the United States. They would rather have another form of government. But there isn't a way to express that. So I don't think that – I mean, there may be some people in the military and the higher echelons of the Cuban government that are afraid that the United States may impose its order again. Um, but I don't think that that's a fear that ha is is there amongst the population in general. Um, I think that most people in Cuba would like to have a better relation with the United States. Um, they, they frown upon their own government when their government makes the United States the enemy, unnecessarily so. 
right? Um, not that there can't be circumstances where it really is the enemy. Uh, but they do frown upon, you know, this idea that the United States is, um, um, is at any point in time going to invade Cuba. That, you know, that has been talked about in Cuba for 60 years, and it hasn't happened. So it's, you know, whenever the Cuban government <clears throat> rolls out the, you know, the anti-Yankee or the anti-imperialist, most people sort of roll their eyes. Uh, do you think that any of the economic changes that Cuba has made are really taking hold and um, changing the equation in any way? Is there more foreign investment? Are there other countries who are coming in? Is there um, uh, a change economically that is going to come? Because Cuba just – it just has to right now. It's so – you know, it's been such a tough situation and now they've, they've got to do something. Right. I, I think that in 1989 is when the Cuban government began to allow large-scale foreign investment. Um, that was a collapse of the Soviet Union, and they found themselves in, in, in a terrible economic situation. They called it option zero, right? And um, I think that that is what opens the door to more foreign investment. Foreign investment is, has been up and down in Cuba, uh, and in part, it is limited because there are no real Cuban laws and regulations that allow you to create, you know, corporations like you do in, in other countries. It's sort of you go and you ask for a permit and then whatever ministry either gives it to you or not. There's a lot of corruption in terms of the foreign investment that's there. And there have been people pushing for there to be, you know, just a set of rules and laws that govern foreign investment. I think one of the interesting things about foreign investment is that this new Cuban constitution actually allows for foreign investment and get it harmonizes the, the practice with national law. But on the other hand, it prohibits Cubans from investing. Okay, so there's, you know, as long as you are saying, you know, okay, Cubans can't invest, but foreigners can, and this is a nationalist government, you know, that came uh, at, at the heels of, you know, uh, 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 another government that supposedly had given the country over to the mob and to, you know, Americans. Um, they're saying it's okay for foreigners to invest, but not Cubans. And I think that people in Cuba, again, that is a source of discontent because there are other ways. I mean, you can allow Cubans to invest and you can then tax. I mean, there's other, there's mechanisms, uh, through which you can distribute the wealth. I think the people in power in Cuba are very afraid of allowing there to be a Cuban independent economic sector that could, in fact, then be a powerful, uh, voice against, um, the government. And instead of allowing Cubans in, they're allowing foreign investors in. So the military is essentially, uh, but they want to keep control of the economy. Yes, I think we could safely say that, Jerome. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it is kind of interesting because if you see in other countries in Latin America, um, it, while the military would come in and take power, they also then would usher a more democratic form of government. Uh, they would, you know, uh, make the economy more efficiency. And I think when you look at the military in Cuba, it is very privileged. Uh, and they also, they've all, you know, we've all, 
always said, you know, Raul's people are a little bit more efficient than Fidel's people, and Raul's people are the military. Uh, but after Fidel's death, the military, those spaces, different spaces in Cuba, either independent or quasi-independent, like, for instance, Old Havana, all the d development in Old Havana that everybody goes to see when you're a tourist in Cuba, and it's, oh my God, it's so beautiful, and this and that and the other. There was an entity that was headed by uh, Eusebio Leal, who was the historian of the, uh, of the city of, of Havana. And that group, he, Fidel had given him power to do whatever he wanted to do. Okay, so he ran hotels. He invested the money from the hotels back into the renovations. They created a UNESCO designation. Um, the minute that Fidel steps down, Raul's people come in and they take over. And they have now really uh, uh, limited um, the kind of productivity that Eusebio Leal uh, was employing in terms of developing um, Old Havana. Um, so there, it is an econ you know, there are factions in Cuba. I mean, this is the other thing I think that a lot of times we think Cuba, the Cuban government, is so monolithic. It's not. There are multiple factions in there, and there are struggles in those factions. The problem is that the ways in which they, you know, it, it's not substantive debate about the future of the country or it's really about getting my peace, okay? Um, and not, you know, we're in Chicago, right? Yeah, right. So, okay, we get that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I think you see this. And so I think that's part of the frustration. You, you, there are adjustments, and they're not, they're not little, okay? I mean, I think that it is symbolic changes like the ones that we're seeing in the Constitution, even if it is only to reify what is already going on, are important symbolically. Will they get the job done of creating a more open political and economic space that can also fulfill the social justice part of the revolution that is taking care of people? We don't know. I think that perhaps it won't. Uh, and then it leaves us with how will the change come? Maria de los Angeles Torres is professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the new constitution uh, of Cuba. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have an Oscar recap with film contributor Milos Stalik. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Green Book won Best Picture last night at the Oscars in a night full of upsets. Let's reflect on last night's Oscars with film contributor Milos Stalek. Milos, how are you? Hey, Jerome. Good to be here. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, I think uh, a lot of people were surprised by the Green Book uh, winning Best Picture. Um, how, did you, how did you assess what happened in that category? It's a travesty. Uh, and the whole show actually gave a new definition to a four-letter wor word, which is dull, D-U-L-L, <laughs> uh, one of the dullest, most manufactured, artificial Oscar nights in history with, as somebody I actually read a wonderful uh, way of uh, representing or, or, or what somebody called uh, Green Book, said it was the white people's guide to racism, which I think 
which I think is a, a really great description because in a way, the whole show really showed up what Hollywood is the best at by far. And it's not acting. It's not creativity. It's not imagination. It's hypocrisy. Uh, Milos, let's run down the rest of the films in the category and why they couldn't win and Green Book could. Um, Black, Black Klansman by, by Spike Lee, obviously. Um, that film uh, is, is not the same thing as, as Green Book. So, so, so that film is not going to win basically, I, I don't know, it, in spite of the fact that a lot of people liked it. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know, a lot of people liked it. It's a film. Obviously, Spike Lee is is not afraid to to come out and be outspoken. I think that of, of course they are, uh, the the Academy got afraid, and so they really pulled back. This was safe, conservative. Let's let's pretend that everything is okay. That we are really safe. That nothing has changed. We have accepted everything. And uh, are living in a new dream universe where uh, anti-feminism, where racism have been solved, which is delusional. And it's the delusion that we really expect Hollywood to deliver. And it delivered it. And Green Book is part of the delusion. Uh, now, Roma was also in the best film category, and it won- did win as best foreign language film and uh, won best director. And it was produced by Netflix. Is 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 the whole uh, picture of a lang- film in another language made by Netflix uh, too much for the Academy to go best picture on? Well, they would never give the picture uh, the best best picture uh, award. Or not to say never, but it, it has virtually never happened to a subtitle film in the first place. Because as accepting and as wonderful as we are, we are still xenophobic. At at some point during the ceremony, when so many of the filmmakers spoke up and spoke in Spanish, I really expected ICE to come in <laughs> and, and, and started making arrests, which would have at least livened up the show and and really. <laughs> show what's really going on underneath the surface. Uh, Netflix may have oversold it in a way because they spent a ton of money on this in a very traditional way. They bought huge billboards. I mean, they went, you know, because this for them had to be a big, big, big win. They got a compromise. No way were they going to give it to a Spanish-speaking film. You know, I think of Netflix and um I, I, you know, I keep comparing it to Amazon and all these bookstores that were out there. You know, chains like Barnes and Noble and and the old motion picture industry looks like a bunch of chains like Barnes and Noble and things. And Amazon is playing a whole different game, and so is Netflix. I'm I'm reading about how they're, you know, have this galloping amount of international subscribers. Uh, they're learning things about what people watch in in right. different countries and. Uh, they're playing a game that is going to just blow the rest of this stuff out of the water if they're successful. Well, they're playing the algorithm. You know, I mean, they are basically delivering to us what we want. And so they're really testing and understanding our psychological reactions to film. Uh, You know, what what motivates us, what makes us happy, what gives us that glow uh, glow after the consuming the Big Mac feeling, you know, and that's that's really what this game is about. It's about controlling hearts, minds, spirits of, of, of individuals. It's a very dangerous game because this game can very easily shift 
to a political role, manipulated in one atmosphere, manipulated in one sphere, is very easy to be manipulated uh, in, in other spheres. Uh, there was – I read this article in the New York Times the other day about Netflix being the most intoxicating portal to planet Earth and that we're experiencing the world differently and other countries are experiencing different programs and people are watching the Great British Baking Show and um, and Dairy Girls and series they would never watch before and, and um, that it's becoming a good unifying force uh, and bringing the world together. Do you think – that is the uh, that is the good side, the upside of Netflix. Well, it, that remains to be seen, you know, because yes, in one way, it's introducing inter- more internationalism, but internationalism on what scale? I would say that first of all, because Netflix just has so much money, they're able to acquire many, 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 many films and programs and just let them float, sink or swim. And if some of them rise up to the top, hey, new algorithm, new direction, something else they can build upon. So those ideas and those trends which they discovered are worth a lot more money in the in the long run, certainly worth the minimum amount of money they would have spent for that film to acquire it. Is it really leading to diversity, diversity not just of language, of culture, but also diversity of artistic expression? That really remains to be seen in, 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 in the long term. I haven't seen a lot of ingenuity there. Obviously, they funded Roma. Uh, you know, spent, but for them, $35 million, which is what Roma cost, is really a very minor enterprise in terms of the mileage that they were able to get out of it. And it was, in some ways, a market, brilliant marketing PR stunt. Milor Stalik is our film contributor here on Worldview. Thanks for joining us and talking a bit about what happened last night at the Oscars. Thank you very much, Milos. Thank you, Jerome. Tomorrow, Chicago goes to vote. There are 14 candidates, and once more, we will bring you an interview about ranked choice voting. It's something that countries like Australia have done for years. It's known as an instant runoff and would make our process easier here. We will talk about ranked choice voting tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.